God, each of us, you call into that place where faith is necessary. God, we could live in comfort. We could live, as the metaphor goes, in the boat. And yet you call us out onto the water. Because it's in that mystery and that tension, even in the midst of fear and discomfort and difficulty, when we find you. So God, you may not be calling us across a literal ocean like you are calling Kevin and Grace. You might not be calling us out onto literal water like you called Peter, but you're calling each of us, God. As we trust you with the challenges and we trust you with those big steps of faith that you're calling us to take in life. Teach us something in and through your word today, God. Open our spiritual eyes and ears. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Again, if you're brand new with us, welcome. We've been studying the book of Colossians this summer in a series called The Hope of Glory because Paul says that Christ is in you and he is the hope of glory. And we don't have a lot of time together this morning in terms of the message because we wanted to spend ample time commissioning Kevin and Grace. So we're just going to get right into it. So if you've got your Bibles, open them up. Uh, Colossians chapter 3. If, if you don't have a Bible, that's no problem. We would love it if you brought one. If you don't have one, come find me. I'll give you one. I'll make sure you got a Bible. There's also one in the seat back in front of you. You can use that. And the scripture, as always, is up here on the screen. Colossians chapter 3, the first four verses, which is all we're covering today, is a bit of a transitional passage for Paul in this letter to the church at Colossae. He spent the first two chapters talking about Christology. That is, who is Jesus? What did he do? And what does he continue to do? Paul has established that and he's also attacked and dismantled completely obliterated I would say the false teaching that's going on at Colossae Gnosticism and syncretism and Judaizers and so on and so forth there's no quiz after you don't need to know that but now that Paul has done all of that now that he's he has established Christ as the burning sun at the center of the Colossian universe he begins to turn his attention towards the implications for the life of the Christian so what does this mean for us in terms of our day-to-day life, what are the applications? And so uh, that, those first four verses, the beginning of Colossians 3, is that transitional passage. And I've got a little outline for these first four verses of Colossians chapter 3. I hope that it helps you. If it, if it doesn't help you, that's fine. But it really did help me this week as I studied, kind of wrap my mind around what Paul is doing, these first four verses of Colossians 3. And he, here's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's presenting a condition, and then he offers us instruction. And then he provides for us the motivation. This is what Paul's doing. He's saying, if this is true about you, there's a condition. I'm not talking to everyone, but if this is true of you, here's the condition. Let me give you some instructions for those of you this, this, is apl- this applies to. Let me give you some exhortation and some encouragement. And then if you ask yourself, you know, why would I do that? I mean, I appreciate the exhortation. I appreciate the instruction. Why would I do that? Paul is going to provide for us some motivation. So as we unpack it today, we're going to see all three stages, a condition, uh, instruction, and then motivation. So Colossians chapter 3, we're starting there in verse 1. Here we go. Paul writes this. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ. Stop there. Did everybody see the condition? Who is he talking to? 
He's talking to those who have been raised with Christ. He's talking to believers. He's talking to Christians. He's talking to followers of Jesus. He's talking to disciples. And we tend to kind of gloss over statements like this in the scripture. We kind of zip by them. But the word of God is breathed out by God's scripture. So every chapter, every verse, every book, every sentence, every word matters. It means something. So why does this verse matter? The first reason this verse matters is in that one little word, if. If. Paul wants to alert his readers to the possibility that there are some of his listeners that may not be raised with Christ. If you have been raised with Christ. Can you imagine that, by the way? This is the church at Colossae, and they are literally hearing for the very first time, as this letter is being read aloud, they're hearing what will become the New Testament. Many of these people may have been around when Jesus was around. Some of them might have even been present at the crucifixion. Some of them might even look back and say, you remember that time he fed all those people with just a couple fish and five pieces of bread? You remember that? I was there. It was awesome. No butter, but other than that, it was really good. These folks are, are living just, just 30 years after Jesus ascended into heaven. So there are folks in Colossae now, they're again reading the very first copy of what would become the New Testament, and there are some there that are not spiritually raised with Christ. And so, 2,000 years later here at Bayview Glen Church on a Sunday morning, I'm guessing, just a hunch, just a hunch, that there may be some with us this morning who are not spiritually raised with Christ. So our first question this morning, coming out of that condition, if you have been raised with Christ, is this, have you been raised with Christ? Pretty simple. Have you been raised with Christ? And before you kind of do the, yeah, I've been raised with Christ. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian, you know. And before you do that, let me, let me offer you three questions. And if you answer yes to all three of these questions, then you've been raised with Christ. And if you answer no to the first two, and likely even to the third one, if you answer no to any of them, then you are likely not raised with Christ. Here, here's the first question to determine if you're raised with Christ, if Paul is talking to you. Are, are you a sinner? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Are you a sinner? Are are you an idolater? Have you elevated things that are not God to the status of God? Have you ever done anything that's contrary to God's written word, the Bible? Has there been any motivations in your heart, any speech that has come out of your mouth, any thoughts that have crossed your mind that aren't totally pure and holy? Would you admit that? Would you confess that? Would you say that I am a sinner? Because that's the first condition for those who are spiritually raised with Christ that say, yeah, that's me, I'm a sinner. And before you shoot off an email tomorrow morning or even right now on your phone and like, Luke, I don't agree with this. Let me read to you 1 John 1.8. It says this. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and we're not living in truth. That's pretty straightforward, don't you think? If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and we're not living in truth. So, so the first question is this. Are you a sinner. If your answer to that question is no, you know what, I don't think that of myself, I don't see myself that way, then you're not spiritually raised with Christ. I love you. We love you. We're glad you're here. If Paul was still around 2,000 years later now, be old, and he, but he would love you too. It's not a question of whether or not we love you. It's just a question of whether or not you are spiritually raised with Christ. That's question number one. Number two, have you trusted Christ alone for salvation? If the answer to that question is no, then Paul's not talking to you. I just want you to know. 
Again, we love you, but Paul's not talking to you. Have you trusted Christ alone for salvation? That's not a popular thing to say these days. I get that, but Acts 4.12 says this. There is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men which we, by which we must be saved. That no other name thing doesn't just mean some other human religious figure. It means the name of tolerance doesn't save. The name of morality does not save. The name of a higher power does not save. The name of religion does not save. Jesus and only Jesus saves. Have you trusted Christ alone for your salvation? And here's the hard one. This is the difficult one. But this is a biblical question to ask yourself. And it's, it's tough. Listen. Is there a growing hunger inside of you for the things of God? Is there a growing hunger inside of you for the things of God? Is there a seriousness in your heart for following after God? Is there an intensity in your heart for following after God? So just everybody look at me. Look at me here because I want to admit something to you. I just want to be really, really clear. I know that we're all on a spiritual journey. I get that. And I know that that journey has peaks and valleys, doesn't it? There are times when you're like, the hunger after God is just, it's almost palpable. Like you can almost taste it. And I know that there are times it's like, oh my gosh, my desire for God is just at rock bottom. It's just hit the floor. So there are peaks and valleys. But kind of over time, the trajectory of that line is a growing hunger and intensity for God. Because listen close, those who have admitted that they're a sinner and have owned the consequences of that sin and have trusted Christ alone for salvation, find within themselves a growing desire over time a growing hunger and intensity and seriousness for the things of God now check this everybody listen this is not about obedience this is not about over time I do more good things and I don't do bad things I'm doing better when it comes to those scales that's not what this is about because that's external stuff this is about an internal hunger for God listen to me here I worry more about the long-term church attender that's really really moral that has no hunger for God than I do the brand new dysfunctional messed up you know just been a Christian 10 minutes that's just that just is salivating for Jesus I worry more about the long-term church attender I do because that person who has been around a church or been around even the things of God for a long time, it doesn't find within themselves a growing hunger for God, probably really hasn't answered yes to those first two questions in reality. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. Okay, so here's the deal. The second reason that this verse is critical, the second reason this verse is critical is because Paul wants us to understand that the order of things here is critical. The order of things is important because Paul is about to talk about behavior in Colossians 3 and 4. He's about to talk about thoughts and attitudes and heart and motivations. He's about to start talking about application. For those of you who have been waiting this whole time through this whole series, for Paul to start talking about behavior, it's now. It, here it is in Colossians 3 and 4. But if we don't get the order right, here's what we're going to start to believe. We're going to believe that the behavior in Colossians 3 and 4 is what saves us. We're going to start to believe that if I do the things that Paul is about to tell me to do, then that's the way I get redeemed. That's the way I get saved. That's the way I'm put in right relationship with God. If I do all those things, and Paul says, no, 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 no. Let's make sure we get the order right. I'm going to say this five different ways so we can all wrap our minds around. Here's the order. 
Christ gives you new life. If then you have been raised with Christ, and that new life results in change. Changing your behavior does not bring about new life in Christ. New life comes first. Thoughts, actions, attitudes, behaviors comes second. First Christ saves you, then he does the hard work of changing you. You don't change you in order to get into God's good graces, in order to earn his favor. For Bible scholars in the place, Tyndale students and those of you who like to read the scripture, justification first, sanctification second, not the other way around. Be sure to mark this. The order is absolutely critical. Jesus first raises an individual to new life. That's first, and it has nothing to do with your behavior. In fact, it's got nothing to do with you at all. The order is important. Salvation first. Redemption first. New life comes first, and change comes second. So we're clear on the condition. The the text is applicable to those who have been raised with Christ. And we're clear on the order of things. Salvation comes first, and now let's move on to the instruction. What are Paul's instructions for us? Here we go. Keep reading. Verse 1, we'll read from the beginning. If then you have been raised with Christ, here's the instruction, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. All right, so Paul gives us, in those first two verses of Colossians, he gives us two commandments. The first one is this, seek the things that are above. Did everybody catch that? Seek the things that are above. In the Greek, the original word in the original Greek language is zeteo, and it's a little difficult to translate, but it's got to do with your desires and your affections. How many of you um, maybe have a different Bible translation than I'm reading? Uh, the, uh, I'm reading the English Standard Version. You have a different translation? You have a different translation? How many of you, your Bible says, uh, set your minds or set your, set your hearts on things above? Anybody have that one? You have set your hearts on? Uh, let's say set your affections. Anybody have set your affections on things above? Anybody have that one? Good, that's not an inspired translation. Totally kidding, totally kidding. Uh, what else does anybody else have? Set your hearts on, set your affections on. Say your what? The second one is mine. What's the first one? Forseek the things that are above. Anybody have anything else? Okay, perfect, good, just checking. Um, those are all great translations. Those are all great translations. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying, place your affections, your desire, set your hearts on, seek, long for, go after, orient your heart toward something different. Seek. The second commandment that he gives us is this. He says, set your minds on. Set your minds on. So he's now, he's talked about our desires and our affections and our heart. And now he's saying, set your minds on. He's saying, think about, ponder, dwell on. And then he connects both of those commandments with one phrase. He says, seek or set your hearts on and set your minds on the things above. And in case we're wondering, the things above are where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Here's what Paul is saying. Christ, enthroned and exalted, should be what captures our hearts and minds. 
This should be what we love, what we dwell on, what we think about, what we desire, and what we seek. And note this, everybody, because we talked about, remember we talked about all the external things last week, all the things that we try to clean up on the outside? See how Paul is, is starting to talk about the inside stuff right away? He starts, he starts to talk about what goes on inside you and me, our hearts and our minds. So why is Paul so focused on our hearts and our minds being oriented towards the things of God, being oriented towards, centered upon, captivated by Christ? The first reason is this, that Paul knows that the greatest miracle is the changing of a human heart. The greatest miracle is the changing, the transformation of a human heart. Because listen, money, fear, guilt, shame, happiness... Self-control, self-discipline, they can all change our behavior, can't they? But none of them can change a heart. Only God can change a heart. Paul knew this personally, by the way. He experiences personally a radical heart transformation. The second reason that Paul is so concerned, and God through Paul is so concerned about our hearts and minds being captivated by Christ, is that Paul knows that man's thoughts are really the true catalyst for his behavior. What goes on in your head, what goes on in your heart, what you think about and what you love is where your behavior comes from. It's the core, it's the center, it's the starting line for what comes out on the outside. Robert Browning's a poet said it this way, he said, thought is the soul of act. Ralph Waldo Emerson said this, he said, thought is the seat of action. The ancestor of every action is thought. Those guys are pretty much saying what Proverbs 4 says. Let me read you Proverbs 4. Above all else, guard your heart, for everything you do flows from it. Everything you do flows from it. So you may be able to change your behavior, but you cannot change your heart. It will stay the same. But if you change your heart, if, or if God, better yet, God changes your heart and changes your mind, then what comes out on the outside, the action and the behavior, will inevitably follow. So when Paul starts talking about application, when he starts talking about what does Colossians 1 and 2 mean for us day in and day out, he immediately starts to talk about what's inside of us, our thoughts and affections. So here's what's happening. God, through his word, is saying, for those of you who have been spiritually raised with Christ, you've experienced new life in him, here's the commandment. Set your hearts on and set your thoughts on exalted Christ, Jesus alone. So here's my question. How in the world do I do that? <laughs> How in the world do I do that? How do I seek and how do I set my mind on things above? Three questions. I know we already did three questions to determine whether or not Paul is talking to you. We're going to do three questions again. Ready? Three questions to help us understand how we set our minds on and set our hearts on the things above. Number one, have you made a choice to do so? Have you made a choice to set your heart and thoughts on things above. I have people tell me often, like, I'm really struggling to obey God. I'm really str like struggling to obey God. 
And, you know, my response sometimes is like, let's pray together. How can I help? And can I hold you accountable? And what can I do to come alongside you? I'm struggling to keep my thoughts and heart on Christ. All right, let's, what can I do? How can I help? And then sometimes people use that word struggling, like I'm really struggling. It's like, it doesn't seem like you're struggling at all. (laughs) You're just running away from God. You're letting your thoughts in your heart because you have not made a conscious choice that your life and your thoughts and affections are going to be focused on Christ. It may sound overly simplified to you, but this starts with a conscious choice that my heart and mind will be captivated by Christ. Perhaps, perhaps, and I'm, I'm really just saying this to get out of trouble here, perhaps there are things that enter into your brain on accident. Perhaps. But I would venture to guess that the vast majority, likely all of those things, have been things that you allowed in on purpose. You, talk, you think about a vacation, you think about a promotion, you think about money, you think about another person, you think about work, you think about school. I do the same thing. And those are things that we have allowed into our mind. We made a choice to think about those things. But, but orienting our heart and mind on the things of God begins with making a choice that that's what we're going to do. And, I, and to me, here's, here's just how I, how I look at this. For me, it began with a life choice. It, it, and, and it should, for all of us, really, begin with a life choice. I, I made a choice a long time ago that Jesus and his eternal kingdom was worth my life. Specifically, for our context today, he was worth my thoughts and affections. This is where that heart transformation, life transformation process began for me, and it really begins there for all of us with a life choice. The second thing is, I find that there are times when I make a choice during a particular life season. You ever felt that way? Like you have this season of life. Maybe you just became a parent. Maybe you just quit your job to start your own company. Maybe you're going through something challenging. Maybe you're going through a difficult divorce. Maybe you just lost your job. Maybe you're at the end of your life. Maybe you're caring for friends, family members, or parents that are at the end of their life. Maybe you just got promoted. Maybe you just got married. Maybe you're in university. Maybe you're dating somebody new. And in each one of those life seasons, there's an opportunity to make a choice that I will dwell upon. I'll set my mind on and my heart upon Christ, the things above. Finally, there's a daily choice here, isn't there? Isn't there a daily choice to wake up in the morning, and to set our hearts and thoughts on the things of God. For the first thing in the morning to say, okay, God, I'm going to think about you today. I'm going to think about Jesus today. I'm going to set my affections on him today. And that's my choice day in and day out. And I would even add moment by moment there's an opportunity to make a choice. You want to you just like a little practical application here, something to help you Uh, make a choice to focus on God, focus on the things above, seek and set your mind on the things above every day. You ready for it? Here we go. Don't put your phone beside your bed. Amen. How many of you would with me admit that the minute that alarm goes off, you're scrambling for your phone? Anybody? Would you do that? Yes. Thank you very much. The rest of you are lying. It's a sin. All right. Um, 
You know, nothing happened on Instagram at 2 a.m., right? Nothing good. We, like, we have this perception that, you know, if I don't respond to this email immediately, puppies are going to combust all over the world. That's, that's the consequences. If I don't get immediately to my phone, put it somewhere else so that the first thing that you think about in the morning is not scramble, scramble, scramble. The first thing you think about in the morning is like, all right, Jesus, this is my choice today. My heart and my mind are yours. Now, where's my phone? <laughs> Have you made a choice to set your mind and your heart on the things above? Number two, what of this world distracts you? You want to know how to set your mind and seek the things above, set your heart and mind on the things above. What of this world distracts you? I love the way Paul writes, because here's what Paul could have said. He could have said, set your minds on things above, period. Couldn't he? Set your minds on things above. But he doesn't. He continues. He says, set your minds on things above and not on things that are on this earth. Why? Because he knows that the tyranny of the urgent governs us sometimes. That the things that are on this earth are the things that feel so pressing. That next appointment, that chore, that bill, that meeting, and they can distract us from the things of God. And Paul also knows that you and I, we have a tendency to elevate things that are on this world above God. They, we elevate them beyond where they're meant to be elevated to. Now, now, listen, now listen close. I would venture to guess that for most of us in this place, the things of the world that distract us most are not morally corrupt things. Just listen. Listen now. Don't panic. I would venture to guess that the things that distract us most are not morally corrupt things. I would, I would suggest to you that they're either morally neutral or morally good things that distract you the most. Because that's what distracts me the most. Listen, vacations, children, rest, sports, hobbies, food, morally good, morally very good, by the way, friendship, recreation, church activity, community service, listen close. Those things are all from God, but they're not God. And they are given to us as gifts so that our hearts and minds are, are directed to the giver of those gifts. They're morally good things or morally neutral things, but they become a distraction for us. They're there to point us to God, but they are not God. Look, if, you're, if your spouse or your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever sent you a love letter and they mailed it through Canada Post and dude from Canada Post shows up at your door and you read the love letter, do you fall in love with dude from Canada Post? No. No. That's not who the love is from. It's from your spouse. If your spouse works for Canada Post, I mean, that may be one and the same. I don't know. Look at in the same way, there are things in our lives that are morally neutral or they're morally good, and they serve as signposts that point us to God, but they are not him. There are things in our lives that are supposed to be the messenger of God's grace, but they are not him. Don't let morally neutral things or even morally good things rob you of ultimate joy in Christ. They're meant to point you to him, but not satisfy you. They're never meant to satisfy you, and so they never will. What of this world distracts you? Number two, 
You want to seek the things above. You want to, or number three, you want to seek the things above, set your minds on the things above. Ask yourself this question. What stirs your affections for Christ? We've already talked about that growing hunger. Remember that? That growing intensity. Can you point to some things in your life that stir that up? That instigate that? That, that cause your intensity for Jesus or your seriousness about God? For some of you, like sitting in this room right now for corporate worship on a Sunday, how many of you would even just be so bold as to admit that? Like when I leave this place on a Sunday, I feel more intense. That hunger for God grows in me by coming here. Would you say that? Good. All right. Seven. Perfect. That's, I was hoping for a little more than that. Whatever. We should talk about what we're doing here. Uh, no, I'm, I'm, I'm totally kidding. Look, for, for all of us, here's what this is going to involve. Our affections being stirred for Christ is going to involve scripture for everybody. Everybody. It's going to involve the Bible. And for some of you, you get the Bible into you in different ways. My, my wife journals. She loves to journal. I've never written a journal page in my life. Proud to say, dear diary. I just, I'm not that guy, but I love to memorize the Bible. That's a way that I get the Bible into me. But you got to figure out a way to get the Bible into you. Some of you like to read through the Bible in a year, read through it in 90 days. Some of you just take one verse and chew on it for like six months. Whatever it is, whatever it is, it's always going to involve the Bible. It's always going to involve prayer. It's always going to involve corporate worship, whether you raised your hand or not. That is, that is here to stir your affections for Jesus, not to be the thing that replaces him, but to point us to him. It's always going to involve those things, but there are some additional things that may help you stir your affections for Christ that, that may not be for everybody. Like for me, I love being outside creation, being in God's creation helps to stir my affection. I look at God's creation, I'm like, man, alive, and my, my, my mind and my heart point to him. Exercise is critical for me. Like when I put my body in motion and I kind of block out distractions, I find my affections for Christ are stirred. So here's a point of application. Look for those things that stir your affection for Jesus. Look for the things of the world that distract you and then adjust accordingly. <laughs> Pretty straightforward. Look for those things, start to put your finger on those things that stir your affections for Christ. Put your finger on those things that distract you and then adjust accordingly. By that I mean put more, put more energy and effort into things that stir your affections and stop pursuing those things that, that distract. So we've got the condition, if then you have been raised with Christ, and we got the instruction to seek and set your mind upon. So let's finish with the motivation. Here we go. Why would we do this? Look at verse 3. Paul says this. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Here's what Paul is saying. Christ has come once, and he came in a manger as a little baby 2,000 years ago. And he is coming again. There is a day... Coming in the future where Jesus is going to crack open the sky and he's going to come in as king and ruler and we are going to reign with him and he's going to put all things right and he's going to bring truth and justice and goodness and grace and yes, even wrath with him. He is coming back. And, and, and here's the thing. Oftentimes for me, the greatest challenge 
For me personally, when it comes to focusing my mind and heart on the things above, on Christ enthroned, is this. It really doesn't get me much in this world. <laughs> That's the greatest challenge for me. I don't know if you've ever felt that way. It's like, you know, you, you, you focus your mind on Jesus and you focus your heart on Jesus and somebody else gets the promotion. You focus your mind on Jesus and you focus your heart on Jesus and maybe somebody else gets attention. The greedy still prosper. The wicked still prosper. The arrogant and dishonest still prosper. Those are the ones who succeed in the world around us. Don't know if you watch the news, but it's not those who are focused on Jesus and are, are loving him and following after him and setting their mind on him that find success in this world. And maybe you're like me. Maybe not, but maybe you are. And you think, when is my time going to come? I mean, I'm, I'm trying, I'm trying, God, to focus my heart and my thoughts on you, but when is it going to come for me? When will my pursuit of Jesus be vindicated? When will success come for me? Listen to what Paul says. He says, when Jesus comes back and he sets things right, the wicked will no longer prosper. Those who follow Christ will reign with him forever. Our old self is, has died with Christ and our life is hidden with him, and when he returns and reveals himself completely and he is no longer hidden our life that is hidden with him will no longer be hidden either it will be completely revealed so the purpose of our life and the way we've oriented our thoughts and affections will be very very clear and it will make total sense that day i heard a story this week about a a young man named jeff Jeff was born to a 19-year-old mom. Jeff never knew his biological dad. Jeff's adoptive dad was 20 years old. Jeff's first job was castrating cattle on his grandfather's ranch. Jeff's second job was McDonald's, which, in my opinion, if you started castrating cattle, is like a lateral move at best if you go from that to McDonald's, right? <laughs> Apparently, he got tired of the cattle, as we all would, I'm sure, and went to flipping burgers. Jeff was said to be friendly but serious and, quote, not particularly gifted in leadership, unquote. But Jeff got a wild idea to start a little company in his garage. And you wouldn't expect a kid like Jeff to be all that successful. In fact, if someone invested with Jeff's little garage company, time, money, energy, thoughts, or affections, you might even poke fun at them, wouldn't you, or feel embarrassed the kid that is not particularly gifted in leadership and puts cattle castration and flipping burgers on his resume probably isn't going to do all that well with this little company he starts in his garage, is he? Today, Jeff is the founder and CEO of a fairly successful company. It's called Amazon. I don't know if you've heard of it. Um, he's personally worth about $35 billion. Don't you wish you would have gotten in on the ground floor on, yeah, you love Amazon. That's good. That's good. I love Amazon too. <laughs> Don't you wish you would have gotten in on the ground floor at Amazon? Don't you wish you would have befriended little Jeffy Bezos when he was castrating cattle or flipping burgers? Don't you wish you would have bought Amazon stock at 18 bucks a share? It's worth like 450 or something now. Look, it's clear now because hindsight is 2020, right? Who could have predicted that? Who could have seen Amazon coming? But if we could have seen it, it would have radically changed our behavior, wouldn't it? Listen to what Paul's saying. He's saying with the kingdom of God, foresight is 2020. 
We know what's coming. And so we know where to invest our thoughts and affections now. So like a man who changes his behavior, his thoughts, and his affections because he knows that little Jeffy Bezos is going to start a company called Amazon. It's going to be worth $45 billion someday. Our thoughts and affections shift radically, and they're totally captivated by Jesus because we know that though our life now is hidden with him, he's going to reveal it one day, and we will appear with him in glory. Here's our bottom line truth today. This is Paul's charge in Colossians 3, verse 1 through 4. This is what we've been working up to all morning. Here we go. Focus your internal world on God's ultimate reality. Focus your internal world on God's ultimate reality. We know what's coming. The Bible all over the place is lifting the veil, is lifting the curtain and letting us see what's coming. So foresight is 2020. We know our life is hidden with him now, but it will one day be revealed with him and we will be revealed with him in glory. And so in the meantime, those of us who are raised with Christ orient our thoughts and affections on him because he is the true reality he is the eternal reality so keep your eyes there keep your mind there keep your affections there and live in eager expectation of the glory that will be revealed when christ our life returns it's going to pay off in the long run let paul not me paul and the bible in colossians 3 assure you as we close our service together today we're going to receive communion. So if you've got your Bible out and notes out, you can just kind of close that up, maybe tuck that Bible back in the seat back in front of you. And even now, I would encourage you to begin to prepare your heart. Ushers, if you would stand and kind of prepare to bring the elements forward. Worship team, if you would join me as we uh, lead in one final song here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to Take a little piece of bread together and a little uh, cup of juice, and that piece of bread represents the body of Christ that was given for us and the blood of Christ that was shed for us. And, and listen close. Everybody look up at me. I know people are moving around, but look up at me here. Here's what the Bible says about communion, that every time we do this, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. So do you see how communion looks back to the death of Christ, looks back to the resurrection of Christ, but it also looks forward. We proclaim his death until he comes again. It looks forward to that day when he cracks open the sky and reveals himself and our life that is hidden with him now will be revealed as well when we rule and reign with him. For those of you who maybe don't call yourself a Christian, if you answered no to those questions, like, you know what, I'm not spiritually raised with Christ, I'm not a follower of Jesus, I would invite you to pass on this part of the service, just pass that plate on by you. But for those of you who are a Christ follower, this is our opportunity to celebrate the goodness and the grace of God by remembering the death that Christ died for us in our place. It's good news. And so we worship him now by receiving communion. Ushers, if you would come forward and join your hearts with me in prayer. God, may the daily bread that is your grace be our sustenance. And may the sweetness of this juice remind us of the sweetness of your mercy. Renew and refresh our hearts, O oh God. Remind us that we are forgiven and whole and justified in you. And even now, would you stir up our affections for you? Would you draw our hearts and minds to you as we worship you? And 
as we receive these elements together. In Christ's name.